Welcome to Naval Gazing, the Valley Indie Podcast. Today, my guest is David Naughton. He played the lead role in An American Werewolf in London, released in 1981, written and directed by John Landis. John Landis' previous two movies to American Werewolf in London, by the way, Animal House and The Blues Brothers. David Naughton was also, uh, he had a hit single in late 70s, early 80s. Making it, I believe it's called, according to people on Twitter. And he was Dr. Pepper. He was the he was the face of Dr. Pepper in one of their most famous ad campaigns. Like, you're a pepper, I'm a pepper, wouldn't you like to be a pepper too? Something like that. Uh, you know, and then he made an American Werewolf in London. So the reason I'm interviewing him is because he is appearing in Connecticut September 14th, 2019, at the CT Horror Fest, the Connecticut Horror Fest. And that's going to be taking place, like I said, September 14th, 2019, at the Naugatuck Event Center, right here in the Naugatuck Valley. Uh, to get tickets and for more information, go to Horror News Network. Net. Again, it's horrornewsnetwork.net, or check out CT Horror Fest on Facebook. David is one of many guests. If you go to either of those websites, you can see who else is going to be there. Uh, anyway, with that being said, here's David Naughton. Oh, hold on. I lied. I totally lied. I just want to credit the Bad Slugs for my intro and outro music uh that's that song you hear ride the dinosaur the bad slugs it's a bunch of bunch of hearst connecticut employees who allowed me to steal their music okay now here's david Naughton. did you hear that i heard that what was it could be a lot of things yeah a coyote there aren't any coyotes in England. Okay, good. Let's go. All right. David Naughton, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me today. Because you're appearing at the CT Horror Fest at the Naugatuck Event Center right up the road from me. I'm in Derby uh, in Naugatuck, Connecticut. And anybody who wants to go say hi to David, please buy tickets at cthorror.com. And you're from West Hartford originally, right? That's right. Many moons ago. I think we were just, you know, we had just signed our constitution. That's how long ago it was. Uh, you're a graduate. It's, it's, it's Conrad High School. Is that how you say it? It's Conard. C-A-R-D. Yeah. Oh, gotcha. And I was doing like, you know, my, my genius uh, research. Damone from Fast Times at Ridgemont High went there in addition to you. Your brother's also uh, an actor, James. What was going on uh, in the water there? Why did it turn out uh, so many performers? Who else? Who was the other Connor grad? I I read that uh, Damone. Remember Fast Times at Ridgemont High? Damone, the ticket scalper. I don't have his, his actual name in front of me, but he, right. he. I guess he graduated like seventy four or so from the same high school. 
Well, gosh, that would be after me, so you know how you never know any underclassmen, right? Right, yeah, you don't pay attention <laughs> to them. So when you're in uh, Connecticut next month, are you going to be visiting people, or is it like a one and done? Do you come out and leave right away? Do you still have family in the state, that sort of thing? Well, yeah, my brother still lives, you know, there. Uh, my sister, who also went to Conard, uh, lives in Minneapolis. And as I said, I'm in California. been in California, in fact, longer than I was in Connecticut, which is kind of crazy. People ask me where I'm from. I go, well, I, I've lived, I lived in L.A. longer than I lived in Connecticut. But, yes, I grew up in, in West Hartford, graduated from, from Conard. And to answer your question, uh, we had a great musical director, you know, a guy named Bill Lauer, who I don't believe is with us anymore. But, gosh, he was such an inspiration we did, you know, the high school musicals and uh, taught me how to sing and taught my brother how to sing as well. You know, my brother James, mm-hmm. certainly won, he won the Tonys for uh, Chicago and and uh, what was the other show he did? Oh, I'm supposed to know my own credits. <laughs> I have trouble remembering my own credits. There's a lot. There's but a yeah, lot. Yeah, we were inspired by the same musical director and, and my sister was in education as were my parents. My, my mom taught at Plant Junior High in West Hartford and at Conard High School when I was much younger, we, you know, so by, and my dad was like the assistant superintendent of schools in West Hartford. So when we, when I came in, it was like, you couldn't hide. You better have your homework. Cause they go, we know your dad, he hired us. We're going to tell him you don't have your homework. I'm yeah. Like, oh, this is not good. That's funny. Cause my father was the chief of police in the town I grew up in. And people are always like, Oh yeah, you probably got away with anything. I was like, no, the opposite. If I, you know, if exactly. I, if I burped, I was, you know, getting punched. So a totally different thing. Yeah. Did they call yeah, it? Uh, no, that was it. Did they call West Hartford Weeha when you were a kid, or was that something that came? Because that's the nickname. Uh, that's like the only thing I really know about West Hartford. It's Weeha. What do they call it? They call it We, like W E, the W E of West uh, dash Ha. Weeha is the nickname. Wow. I yeah, see. That's that's just the, <laughs> you know. Remember, I went there before computers. I went there, you know, in the 69, class of 69. In fact, coming up to 50, my 50th reunion is a couple of weeks. It's in October, and I'm not sure I'm going to be able to make it. Oh, wow. Okay. Well, hey, God bless. So, I know, but isn't that crazy? Going, all right, explain where 50 years went. Well, I wish I could, but... Oh, that's one of the things I wanted to ask you, because, you know, you're appearing at the CT Horror Fest. You were in American Werewolf in London, one of the, not just one of the best horror movies ever made, in my opinion, one of the most unique and greatest movies ever made. But when people ask you about it at this point, I mean, I'm 45. I first saw it when I was probably in third grade, far too young uh, to have seen that movie. But when you talk about it, does it feel at this point you're even talking about your own experience or has it been so long and you've, you've, you've rehashed the thoughts so much? Is, is it like talking about a dream at this point? Well, it's, it's interesting because what uh, brings it back really vividly is going and attending these, these kinds of, you know, shows, these, these conventions, because standing, I'm standing behind a table, which has a ton of pictures and posters and, you know, color stills from the movie. Um, so it's pretty much vivid in my mind and having attended a few of these conventions over the years, you know, I pretty much know the questions people are going to ask me. They always ask me, how long did the makeup take? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it won Rick Baker, his first Academy Award. And I've seen Rick certainly since these past 38 years, as the movie was released in 1981. But he says, yeah, we really tortured those guys. 
that's that's uh, Rick Baker's you know take on it. Yep. And I can you know I'm still happy to stand on stage and do these Q and A's going. That's right. Let me confirm. He did torture us, <laughs> both Grip and Dunn and me. Yeah, and you had, I mean, you had a, a television show. You had a hit single. Then you get American Werewolf in London. Then I read, I was just going through your IMDb. You were on The Tonight Show, I guess. I've never spoken to anybody who's been on The Tonight Show. I mean, if that was, if that's correct. With Johnny Carson. Yeah, yeah The know? Tonight Show. Right, right. Yeah. What was the that Tonight like? The Tonight Show with Johnny Carson. Not just... Uh, you know, one of his many, you know, terrific uh, guest hosts. But to be on the show with Johnny, it really impresses me more now going, wow, what a moment that was. Just because, you know, it's sort of like you're going to go in and seeing the president or somebody, you know. Uh, you're you're going to go in and see the man, the guy who was at the top of his game. And uh, so and this number of interviews I had to do, with his producers before I even got on the show was particularly, you know, daunting going, remember, don't interrupt Johnny. Okay. <laughs> don't look at Ed. Look at Johnny. <laughs> Ed McMahon is sitting over. I said, okay, I'll, I'll try to remember all this stuff. And they go, you know, and so they, they cover like a long period of questions. And what they don't tell you is, if Johnny doesn't like you, he's going to go to commercial, and that's the end of your interview. <laughs> really? So how'd it go? Yeah, so it went great. He was going, you know, he sort of buttoned it off by going, nice young man, nice young man, you know. So, but what are the, uh, so I was a little nervous, knowing you're not sure how long you're out there, and I was there to promote the film. Uh, but um, it was pretty neat, you know. It was uh, definitely cool. You're behind the curtain. They bring you out as a guest. You kind of, you know, there's no rehearsal. So it's just like, go for it. Okay. Hi, Johnny. <laughs> How are you? And then Ed McMahon, was so, he, uh, was he, uh, was he all right? Was he half in the bag? There's stories, you know, the stereotype is that Ed was a big partier. I don't know if that came to fruition or not. Yeah. You mean, listen, I, you know, who knows? We could have all been in the green room. You know, they always have back then they were used to, you know, they'd have, your little green room dressing rooms and you could have whatever you want you know just so yeah. there'd be a bar set up you know that's probably not a good idea well, right yeah that makes for some good tv though i guess but you know the, the thing I say, I... i'll do it after yeah i'll do it after i yeah, do the interview uh the only thing is when you come after the interview you don't get to go back to the green room they go thank you and there's the door. You're out. You're gone, yeah. But it was pretty fun. I think they even have a copy of it somewhere. So how did you stay grounded? Like, how, you have all that success uh, pretty quickly. You're not that far out of college, uh, you know, after studying acting in London. Uh, did you, like, buy a wing at the Playboy Mansion? Or did you, like, how did you keep yourself not from becoming an a-hole? Well, you know, the thing is, the reality is that what people, a lot of people think that if you make a movie or a couple of things, that you're, you know, incredibly wealthy. And it's not the case. You know, I've, I, I have to say my parents were, you know, kept me pretty grounded. Um, it, you know, the success that I had, I just remember sort of like golf. When you hit a great shot, one of the keys is try not to look surprised. Hmm. So that when I, when I was with some of the success, the reality was I was quite surprised as things were coming along. Um, but all it takes for a little humble pie is to have those periods where you're not being able to get gigs. And I've certainly lived through those as well. So at some point you have to have a, and I don't know when exactly it happened, but I had to have this sort of attitude like, 
remember, this is just a job, you know? This is just what you do. It's not who you do or who you are. I mean, it's who you are, not who, not, not what you do. So I, the reality is I try to separate, and that's very hard to do, is separate your career from, you know, your life um, because it becomes all wrapped up into one. And, and uh, it's, sometimes I was good at it and sometimes I wasn't. Let me ask you about uh, John Landis. Uh, when I was researching on YouTube and the internet. Uh, I, I think John Landis is underappreciated uh, to a certain point. If you look at like directors who had uh, runs, you know, a string of, of classic movies, you know, William Freakin, French Connection, The Exorcist, uh, I guess uh, Francis Ford Coppola, Godfather 1 and 2, and then later Tarantino, Reservoir Dogs, Pulp Fiction. But Landis, like John Landis, writes and directs Animal House, in 1975, changes the face of the American comedy, follows that up with the Blues Brothers, which works in like as an action movie, as a musical, as a comedy, and then he makes an American Werewolf in London, which works as a love story, a buddy comedy in which one of the buddies is dead, is a damn scary horror movie. Were you on pins and needles? Because you can't. And then he makes Trading Places, by the way. He, then he launches sort of uh, Eddie Murphy or helps to uh, to help that star uh, rise. Were you nervous working with Landis, or did he just put you at ease? Could you believe it was happening? What was that like uh, when you got the part? Well, you know, I should say that it's probably understandable that he may be overlooked because he was coming up with a guy named Steven Spielberg. Right. So, so that, you know, Steven Spielberg, <clears throat> he would overshadow the Poe, you know? I mean, it's like, well, there's, there's a guy who is probably, certainly Spielberg will go down as one of the greatest, you know, directors of all time. And yet, John is. He's a brilliant guy. I mean, he wrote the screenplay when he was 21. Come on, working on a movie as a PA, a production assistant, which is, you know, the lowest of the low in terms of the totem pole has no real influence, but he, he was keen and he knew he wanted to be a film, you know, director. So he writes the screenplay. It's practically the exact same screenplay. I think word for word is what we shot. That's incredible. It's pretty well done. You know, it is. And, and, uh, you know, the, he is, he can, he's very disarming in terms of, uh, and perceptive. He's really smart guy. He, he gets it. You just, it's hard to understand him because he's a couple of steps ahead of you and he's very smart and moving. So you're kind of going, is he putting me on? Let me just try to get a vibe for where's this guy coming from? I haven't met a guy like this before in my life. And it turns out he's, um, he is, he's very funny. And we had lots of little practical jokes along the way in the shooting of the film. You know, so as an actor, you have to be a little bit thick skinned so that you can take a joke, you know, because he's going to poke fun at you. And he certainly poked fun at me over the years when we've done uh, Q&As at different shows. But that's John. You know, I know where his heart is. It's in the right place. He's a very kind guy. Uh, and he's um, really was a really fun to work with looking back. And it's also fun to see wherever we are. We did a little tribute for Rick Baker in Los Angeles last year. He and I got up on stage, John Landis and I got up on stage with no rehearsal, you know, and just sort of poked fun at Rick, you know, but beforehand, John's going, okay, what are you going to say? <laughs> <laughs> I go, I don't know, what are you going to say? So it's that kind of uh, fun that, uh, but he really is, a, a, you know, a history buff for film. 
he can uh, talk about anything. The guy loves movies. Does. Yeah, he really does. He's a walking, you know, movie boss and history. And, uh, you know, he's unfiltered in the way that he talks. And uh, that's always been kind of fun when you're around him. So I say, okay, you can say it. I don't have to. Did uh, remember I'm from Canada. Right, that's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You're from Connecticut. You can't, you can't uh, be offensive or step on anybody's toes. Uh, did you get to steal any uh, props from uh, Rick Baker, uh, the most famous makeup sequence probably in the history of man? Do you have well, any of it? Well, yeah. You know the makeup. You know there was the, the all the wolf stuff uh, was you know it's basically made of rubber and latex, so it decays. So uh. there are a couple of guys who still have some of the original stuff, but it's you know it's really. You have to keep it up. You have to maintain it because, as I say, it's it's just rubber and latex, and that stuff disintegrates. The, uh, what blew my mind uh, in London recently was a guy walks up to me at the at the table because you never know what fans are going to bring. Sometimes yeah. they bring stuff collectible, and particularly now with eBay and buying stuff and searching things. So the guy brings up the original red jacket parka that I wore in the movie. <laughs> And he had it in a bag like it had been dry cleaned. He says, you won't believe this. I go, okay, what is it? So he unzips it, and out comes the red parka. Oh, uh, there it is, the North Face, which is what? And, he, and I said, wow, I, I haven't seen this, you know, in so long. That was one of the cooler sort of props uh, from wardrobe that I've seen as an original piece. We all wanted and coveted the slaughtered lamb pub sign of course yes which i think don ended up of course getting and taking and then there were other props along the way that you know some of the signs for different places we were out on the moors and there are these fictitious towns last year is right over there well last year the production designer's name was less <laughs> so he called it less shire you know it was a town which he just sort of invented we go oh i want that sign you know well he's probably got it but um you know, they were asking me, do you want the boots? Do you want the backpack? I go, I don't want to see any of that stuff. Thanks very much. <laughs> uh, you were done with it because it was a tough shoot. Yeah, it was hard. It was tough. I didn't want to see another pair of, uh, you know, any of the pro any of the werewolf stuff and the fake teeth and the, the full-length glass contact lenses. No, you can keep those. Thanks. One thing that's great about that movie, one of the many things, is the sounds. When the audience first hears the the wolf howl is terrifying, uh, Griffin Dunn gets attacked at the very beginning. I mean, spoiler alert to anybody who hasn't seen this movie. I mean, I don't know what's wrong with you. He screams, it's killing me. And then in that transformation scene, you know, by the time that happens in the movie, we're totally invested. Like, the audience is your character. You're the guy we identify with. And uh, there you are going through this torturous uh, transformation. And you scream something about, uh, it burns or I'm burning. Uh, I'm burning up, yeah. Yeah, was, was any of that, was that right from Landis? Did he give you any uh, leeway to improvise? Uh, anywhere during the filming of the movie, or was it all pretty much uh, what he had said or wrote? No, the yeah, if there were words, you know, there, we had a couple of ad libs, but John, uh, to his credit, wrote those lines and burning up and so forth. So we we certainly had a discussion about what this transformation was going to be like. Insofar as was it going to be something? Am I awake? Am I conscious? Am I unconscious? Is it just something where I pass out and then it just sort of happens? Just Oh, no, you're awake and it hurts. Okay, that's something to go on. 
and it's just like, he says, now you just imagine bone stretching and you're looking at it. And so we both came up with the idea of not only am I physically feeling that sort of transformation, but I'm also, you know, just in total consternation about what is happening to me. So there's a couple of things to play and you, tr- you were hopefully trying to pull that off. Like what is happening? Oh my gosh, everything they said is actually true. I am going to turn into this thing. And, and so right before my very eyes, I can't believe what I'm seeing. And oh yeah, it hurts like hell. It's a terribly immersive experience. Was there any uh, ticks, tips or techniques or, or the way you approach the, the craft of acting that uh, Landis sort of taught you from filming that movie? Well, no, you know, I think getting back to an earlier question where you had asked, you know, was I intimidated or, or, or really nervous by him? Um, my interview with him was really all that it took for the audition. I didn't have to do a screen test. I just went in and sat down at his office and we just, you know, shoot the, shot the breeze for what would be 20, 25 minutes about, you know, my experience in London and his experiences. And, and what part of what got me the job, as he has since told me, was he saw a sort of likability in my character on the Dr. Pepper commercials and said, well, if this guy can do, can reach an audience in 30 seconds, maybe he can certainly you know, portray that sort of likability in my movie because it's important for me that the the audience likes that character. Otherwise, it's just, you know, it's going to be, oh, he got what he deserved. So so I think he cast me in in a way that I trusted him to be able to be myself, to be, you know, likable and relaxed. And he encouraged that sort of relaxation saying, yeah, you know, you got it. You're, you're, you're on the right track. If he didn't like a take, he would certainly ask you to do it again. But he was so fast, it was really the other way around, saying, no, no, wait, John, can we do that again? I think I got something else. Just, I got it. I got what I need. Let's go. <laughs> and it launched, like, one of my, my buddies that actually co-hosts a podcast with me, uh, he's a makeup effects artist, and it's like, you know, like growing up with him and reading Fangoria, they, all the makeup tutorials, it all comes back. Uh, to American Werewolf or thereabouts. What about the reviews? I found a review uh, from the Washington Post, 1981. Maybe you've read this. I think it's like the only old, really, review that's available from uh, Rotten Tomatoes. And just the lead, this is kind of hilarious. John Landis must have must have entertained greater aspirations for his new movie, An American Werewolf in London, than the dismaying results he stuck with. A wasted clever title and a minor fiasco destined for an obscure niche in the scrap heap of horror movies was that <laughs> like i mean wow another rave <laughs> but i mean it, 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 what was that like a typical review was it not i mean i i just i saw it really uh when you know vcrs came around uh and you know you you would be dared to sit through an american werewolf in london were the initial reviews all sort of like that they just didn't get this movie they did not get it they you know to say the least they were mixed reviews roger ebert didn't get it i talked to him in person and you know, the thing was, it was just, there were a couple of things. You know, John Landis was known for, this, as you had mentioned, the comedy and the Blues Brothers, a romp. And, and suddenly we had a horror film on their hands and they didn't know how to handle it. And also because there was so much comedy in this particular movie. Mm-hmm. You know, John sets you off on a little jaunt like these two guys. It's jokey and fun. Let's take you down this path. 
And then in a few minutes, we're going to scare the living daylights out of you. And we're going to zigzag into another, into another way. So the film was incredibly unpredictable the first time you see it. And that's all planned. That's his genius, along with, you know, the editing of it and how he wanted to plot along and take you on a journey that you don't know how it's going to go. And so the reviewers were going, well, which is it? Is it a comedy or is this supposed to be a horror movie? You know? And, and he said, well, this is 1981. There weren't anything like it. And so in the marketing of the film, it was John's idea to go, just so people know, on the poster it said, from the director of Animal House, a different kind of animal. <laughs> And people didn't get that. No. We mean this is a different movie, folks. Get ready. And so it's fun for me to hear from fans saying, I didn't know what we were in for. And so I was sitting there and my dad knew, you know, some people hadn't, it, the word of mouth hadn't gotten along going, you got to see this movie. It's going to scare the daylights out of you. But some just thought, oh, a John Landis movie. Let's go in. Maybe it's a spoof. And they get freaked out and run out. And they go, I, I can't see that movie. Don't go see it. You're going to be scared to death. And so the critics, as well, had trouble with it. And uh, there was talk, I guess, two years ago or so of a remake, possibly. Uh, have you heard anything like the status of the remake that was sort of half announced a few years back? Or Yeah, it was kind of half announced. And no, I, I wish I were you know, in that pipeline. But, you know, it's supposedly being uh, going to be, you know, a remake, not even, you know, a re whatever uh, it's going to be supposedly rewritten a remake written and directed by John's son, Max Landis. So, uh, which I'm assuming John Landis would be executive producer slash dad. <laughs> <laughs> you talk about having to look over your shoulder. Uh, so, you know, it'd be interesting to see if it's, uh, if it gets made um, on for many levels, as you know, you know, how a film ever even gets made, let alone to the, to a theater are many, 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 many layers and things that happen. Um, and people have asked me how I felt about it. And of course, like a lot of fans, I went, Hey, leave enough, leave well enough alone. You know, let's, you know, go get your own movie. But upon further examination, <laughs> what will happen in the next generation long after I'm gone is people say, yeah, yeah, I saw that, but did you see the original? Hmm. And a whole new generation of people will discover, if they hadn't already, an American Werewolf in London, 1981. Probably to, to and, get, I'm sorry, go ahead. No, I just was going to say, that that's, that's okay with me. And I, I would assume to get it made, they have to add, like, Iron Man or Spider-Man into the script somewhere. So everything has to, or like a lightsaber to, to get it made uh, yeah, in, the current, I mean, in the current climate. Why wasn't there a sequel? It seemed like that would be a natural movie for a sequel in the subsequent years, you know, a few years after, uh, you know, it was released in 81. Was there ever talk? I mean, I, I read something in the last couple of years where Landis said we had this great idea to bring all the original characters back. Your character was going to be sort of like the uh, the Griffin Dunn character visiting uh, uh, another character. I won't go through the whole script, but wh why wasn't anything ever made in, the, in like the 10 years well, after? Yeah, you know, I... I, I don't really know the, the true answer to that, other than there are probably a lot of variables. But part of it was John's interest. I don't know that he had the interest. Mm -hmm. He was moving on to other things. Um, 
Rick Baker certainly was. It's like, no, this is our statement. You know, let this sit. And there was something about that that was okay with them, you know. Even though they all universal, they all want to lock you up for a couple of picture, two or three picture deal in the event that the film is a giant hit, you know, you're going to be impossible to get as an actor, which is, you know, that's used to be the theory. Get them early in case this thing, let's, you know, make the deal. So if we have the option, we can use it and it won't, uh, it'll be cheaper. But I think as far as John's and Rick's, uh, interest and availability onto something else, maybe we'll get to it down the line. I think is probably the mentality. And, and that's okay. You know, there's something about movie, you know, when you've got some of those franchises that just get watered down with every, you know, production. Hey, now we're going to see Werewolf 4, well, Werewolf 5. And, you know, it just sort of, I think, does just, just exactly. It dilutes the original and it just looks like exploitation. And I'm happy to say that we didn't do that. Gotcha. And then I, I just have two more questions and I'll let you go and I'll thank you for taking uh, so much time chatting with me. But My Sister Sam, that was a show I used to watch with mom and dad. It was on CBS. And from what I remember, it was like CBS had this lineup of smart, sophisticated uh, comedies. There was like uh, Kate and Allie, from what I remember as a kid, and then My Sister Sam, and then uh, The New Heart show the uh the 80s uh reimagining i guess before it's time uh, of new heart and then i was surprised to find out my sister sam was only on tv for uh for two years so how did yeah, they two sc- seasons. how did they mess that up well <laughs> you know that was a head scratcher because but it comes down to you know politics unfortunately for us between seasons between we debuted in 1986 and really, that whole CBS Monday night lineup, which went on for maybe 20-something years, where they, that was their comedy night, Monday night, hmm. which later became, you know, the Murphy Brown, and it was a Monday night. Well, we had Diane English, who was cutting her teeth on TV. Diane English, who did Murphy Brown, became our executive producer, showrunner, on My Sister Sam. So it was like, how can we miss? Well, unfortunately, there was a changing at the top, you know, at the top in terms of CBS entertainment executives. And so they inherit shows. So that means they want to do their own shows. They don't want to do the shows that they have to inherit on their lineup. You know, mm-hmm. they want to make their own market. And that's kind of what happened to us. I think we were collateral damage because of the changing of the guard at the top level of CBS uh, executive entertainment directors. We went, wait a second. Come on, Pam. Pam, get in there and fight for the show. Because Pam Dauber was you know, uh, certainly the person on the show, the big, she was a producer on the show. She was coming off Mork and Mindy, um, right? That's how she got that from yeah, what I read. Yeah. Mark yeah. and Mindy. And it probably didn't help us that she was dating Mark Harmon while we were on the show. And then I think she, they got married and she was pregnant in the second season when we were trying to hide her pregnancy. Oh. <laughs> so I think that didn't probably in terms of her interest in the show, and how it was going to go, and she and Mark were on their, on their way, who are still married today, and I think that's fantastic. That, oh, no kidding. You know, they're one of those, yeah, they're one of those Hollywood couples that went, oh, yeah, we got it, we got it right, and are just married, you know. And it's so funny because I haven't met her son. She has two, I believe. I haven't seen her in a long year. But I know that I did scenes with her while she was pregnant 
with the, one of those boys who are now from 1986, like 35 or 40. Oh, that's wild. <laughs> Isn't it crazy? I mean, that's what you think about it. My son, 33, who's just made me a grandfather, he played an episode in My Sister Sam as a baby in a baby, you know, diaper commercial. He was only 18 <laughs> months old. And, and you know, the, the episode was Pam shooting this baby and the babies, you know. So they go, we need a baby. And I said, I got a baby. I got a baby home. It's just like perfect. Sure enough, so I have this 35 millimeter scene of my son when he was 18 months old being on a TV show. It's like, you know, pretty neat. Now yeah, he's that's got precious. a year and a half. Yeah, it is. And he's got a year, year old little daughter, my granddaughter, who I'm going to see next week. When we're up there for our family reunion up in, I think we're going to be in Woodstock, New York, in and around Connecticut. But <laughs> so all that kind of neat stuff. And, and so I think that's it. I don't blame anybody other than the guys at the top who for some reason were disenchanted by the show primarily because it wasn't their show. And so what they do is they move your time slot and that's death, you know? Yeah. They, and they move that all around the dial slot. or all around the, every time slot conceivable from what I read. It was all over. Yeah. The place. People go, where's that show? And this is before, you know, there was just three networks at the time and they still couldn't find us. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And then they bring in Dr. Quinn, a uh, medicine woman eventually. And that's the end of it. All right. I got one last question for you. And it, it, it might be kind of weird, but uh, going back to the horror uh, theme that started the podcast, I guess, and uh, in, in honor of the CT Horror Fest, which is coming up September 14th at the Naugatuck Event Center up there in uh, Naugatuck, Connecticut, beautiful part of the Naugatuck Valley. If you had to choose one horror movie character to have a Dr. Pepper with, who would you choose and why? Oh gosh! Usually, I, I make it a beer, I, but to, in, in your in you know, I'm going to make it Dr Pepper for you. So, so I can include Dr Pepper. We're talking about a horror role. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm, no, I was saying you're gonna you're gonna enjoy a beverage with them. I just made the beverage Dr Pepper. I'm saying, like I picked. Yeah, I'm, have I made this completely confusing? I apologize. I'm not. A, I'm I'm not a professional. Yeah, you have, but that's fine because. I may not understand the question, but I always have an answer. All right, wait. Let me let me repeat it then. What name a horror character? Any horror character in the world you'd like to get drunk with? Like I would love to get drunk with Leatherface from the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. So I I just think he'd be fun. He'd be a, a, a barrel of laughs. So name a character you'd most like to get drunk with. Is what I was trying to ask. Oh well, I just would like to. As I don't drink, it wouldn't be fun to get drunk with anybody. But I'd sure like to hang with Lon Chaney Jr. There you go. Yeah. You know, Can't beat that. It would be just because, you know, I mean, he, he popped up after the Wolfman over the course of some years. And he, uh, you know, his career had its ups and downs. And, but he had some qualities that were just so endearing. And, and I would just love to have had, you know, sit down and have some talk and talk about, you know, how people, it's interesting how people think they know you from a, from a character that you play. Mm. I know that there are tons of guys on TV who've had long, long uh, careers as a character and people come up and call them by that name. So Alon Chaney Jr. would be a really neat guy to sit down with and talk about uh, the impact of a role and, and how it changed their lives, not to mention how it changed the lives of the fans that watched it. 
and the influence, I mean, the direct influence it had over your life, because in a lot of ways, your character in American Werewolf in London, the fact that he's sympathetic and likable, it's just, you love the Wolfman. Lon Chaney uh, Jr. was so lovable, whatever that quality was, that John Landis apparently saw in you and put you in the movie. Yeah, it could well be. There's definitely a parallel there. All right, sir. Now that I uh, I beat that into the ground, I apologize. I want to thank you, though. Not at all. Listen, that's right. great. It's crazy. How are you going to cut this whole thing down to that four-minute spot that you're going to have? Four-minute <laughs> spot? No, this is a podcast. We can go on for another three hours if you want. I got I got, I got, got six beers. I got Sam Adams, uh, Porch Rockers ready to go. This There's there's no editing. I, I mean, I'm going to edit out the beginning where I sound like an idiot. But uh, other than that, no. <laughs> no, it's all that's good. Great. Well, I sure appreciate it, Eugene. This is great because... As I said, I I, um, I appreciate the publicity. I hope uh, there'll be lots of fun and surprises and people that I know or don't know or should know, and uh, we'll uh, we'll have some fun up in Connecticut. Yeah, I'll be there. I'm gonna have a booth with uh, my podcast, so you gotta uh, come by and uh, have a glass of water with us or something. Yeah, that sounds good. All right, David, take care and thank you again. My pleasure. Bye bye.
fight the dinosaur. The presses are running all through the night. We're printing the truth with all of our might. We're platform agnostics, got that interweb too. Buy an ad, see what we can do. Still have subscribers, still have our fans, we're here every day, so give us a chance and we'll make an art stand. Just hold us in your hand, yeah, and we'll ride the dinosaur. Yeah, ride the dinosaur.